Now, it's a, I want to engage in some apologetics, basically, before saying anything about tantra. Because uh, if it's true that we're only beginning to really know Buddhism and Buddhist texts, then it's constantly surprising when you look close to what you find. We don't know a thing about tantra yet, in my opinion. And I'm not one of the great masters now that are devoting their entire careers to studying the tantras and opening them up in a way that uh, hasn't been possible before. But, uh, you know, having been trained, having gone through a whole history, you know, uh, at Harvard with uh, this uh, impression of some sort of radical shift in the ethics of Buddhism uh, when the tantric literature arose, when I studied the Mahayana literature, and of course we can talk about the Theravada materials also if it's helpful, um, it made me wonder, have we basically read tantric ethics against this false negative space? Of some sort of perceiving a sort of generic Buddhist pacifism, you know, when of course any Buddhist king in the ancient world couldn't live for five minutes without the threat of deadly force. Um, then in effect, maybe we need to take another look here and you know, see what we find. So let me just share with you from a preliminary uh, kind of look. I looked at the sadhanas for killing in a, a broad variety of Mahayana sutras and tried to find what the ethics were related to them. And then I also looked into the sources of um, the uh, wrathful deities, which are also generally attributed to Tantra, so all those iconic things that make people think wow, you know, something has really changed here in the Buddhist imagination. Uh, and that sort of started actually with back with Satyavach and seeing, uh, suddenly realizing that this uh, armed bodyguard follows the Buddha everywhere. This is taken for granted in my answer, which is also, I didn't get trained thinking that the, the Buddha was basically followed by a, a burly looking armed bodyguard with a vodka in his hand that threatened to smash people's heads. You know, they didn't behave. I'll tell you some of these stories here. Um, so where do these characters come from? And actually, we find that they go way back before Mahayana Buddhism. And in fact, uh, these wrathful deities were already wrathful even in uh, Sarvastivadin context, Mahasambhika context, and then so the Tantras merely spiritualize them. There, there's nothing particularly new about them. So here's, a, here's some thoughts on the, the Tantric side of this. Can you define Tantra just as you're using <laughs> Actually, that would be another whole lecture. Uh, what we could say is that around, say, and the dates are highly debatable, but um, around the uh, 6th, 7th century in India, um, there evolved a new genre of literature that sometimes call themselves tantras. That um, they are um, uh, concerned with uh, attaining enlightenment in this very lifetime, that they are uh, to some degree a response, especially the later tantras, to an almost apocalyptic situation in which Buddhism is kind of in decline or being uh, destroyed by invading forces in North India. Um, there's a, uh, a, a fascination with working with, uh, and this is the kind of thing that really registers strongly, you know, sort of the degenerate Buddhism thing. Working with um, the forbidden, with the, uh, the transgressive. So, if you like, uh, if, we were, if we're working from a, 
a mind-only perspective, you know, that actually I think Tataka de Garba thought Buddha nature thought was a very, very important basis for Tantra, regardless of how Tibetan Buddhism tries to integrate it with Yamaka. Um, if that means that, uh, you know, all this room is shining up in the luminosity of Buddha nature, that delightful. That means that uh, if I had a, you know, a piece of shit in this hand and a candy bar in this hand, they're both shining up in that same light. And if I am fundamentally in the mode of bifurcating my reality in a dualistic response, this alienating me from that thing that is the single taste of both the chocolate and the shit. So tantric practice, instead of, say, trying to get you to uh, be celibate, calm down your emotions, or say, you got a problem with anger? Let's go right straight there. You have a problem with impurity? Let's deal with revulsion. Um, if sexuality is your issue, let's have sexual yoga. So um, in terms of practices, it is a rather radical shift. And, uh, there's also a, a strong obsession with power in Tantra. But you should know that there's nothing more controversial than that question, what's the definition of Tantra? Thank you. Just my partner here. So uh, I'll just use Tantra in the, the generic sense that we're, we're starting to explore this new literature in a more sophisticated way than it's ever been done before. Most of it's not even translated yet. Okay. So Snowgrove is one of the famous scholars, early scholars of uh, Tantric studies. And Schmidthausen, another, he's a great scholar of violence and Buddhism. Both cite the Chanda Maharoshana Tantra as evidence that the Siddha was the great tantric practitioner is beyond all conventional norms. It says that, quote, even if you should slay a hundred Brahmins, he's not touched by evil. By the same evil acts that bring people into hell, the one who uses the right means gains salvation, there's no doubt. I hope by now that sounds like very familiar. Snowgrove shows several times that he's reading the tantras against the misinterpretation of Mahayana ethics. He writes that, quote, and by the way, I don't mean to disrespect these people. It's always easy to look down at someone when you're standing on their shoulders. That's definitely my relationship to Snellgrove and these other scholars. But we don't go a little further than maybe their work wasn't uh, worthwhile, right? We should. Okay, so he quote, the same tantra binds neophytes to the regular moral codes, but allows for such action by the one perfect in yoga, who remains composed in the state of innate bliss and unified with the deity Chanda Maharoshana, the fierce, wrathful one. However, elsewhere, the perverse actions are rationalized in accordance with earlier Mahayana teachings, which allow a bodhisattva to commit wrong actions and willingly pay the penalty for them by temporary sojourn in one of the hellish abodes, if only it is for the good of living beings. And I have still not found anywhere, I've been working for decades on this, any place where a bodhisattva goes to hell for engaging in this. And again, Quote, extremes of license are not justified by the bodhisattva's willingness to sacrifice his own personal destiny, which is something quite different from being in a state which is beyond good and evil. So he's reading Mahayana ethics as a, an ethic where you sacrifice your own well-being for the sake of others. And actually, would argue that is never the case in bodhisattva ideal. So there's several problems with this view. First of all, neither the Mahayana sources nor the Tantra speak of self-abnegating sojourns in hellish abodes. In fact, both agree that the killer actually makes merit from compassionate killing. 
Regardless of whether the killer is a neophyte or a siddha, I have not found a tantric sadhana or exhortation to kill that stands outside the normal Mahayana requirement that such acts be based in compassion. The phrase, by the same evil acts that bring people into hell, the one who uses the right means gains salvation, is virtually the same as that used by Shantideva, Aryadeva, Asanga, and others. The same passage in the Vajra Bhairavatantra, which speaks of killing a hundred Brahmins, goes on to say, one should strive to kill those who revile the masters, slander the Mahayana, and deride the practice of spell and tantra. If the uncompassionate yogin acts violently towards others, such actions will rebound on him. Whatever harm the yogin does to sentient beings, for whatever reason, will happen to him as well. So basically, any action without compassion will have an enormous negative impact. That's, you could say it's the thing that protects these people in these activities. The first problem is discerning whether and when these multivalent texts are actually talking about killing people. And that's been a huge debate in uh, tantric studies. Uh, it's not been fully accepted that the tantras actually support killing at all. Uh, Williams and Tribe wrote in a recent general study of Indian Buddhist thought that, quote, the recommendations of a Buddhist tantric text to transgress the Buddhist ethical norms seem not intended to be taken in their most literal sense. In contrast, those advocating association with what is impure do seem, for the most part, so intended. And this conclusion can be sorted, supported in, in various ways. And I'll begin by offering evidence uh, supporting it here. So how can we see this in a way that says, that, you know, really, they weren't talking about killing, that this isn't a kind, kind of a shift. Um, many passages that speak of killing are principally aimed at being shocking, even sometimes showing us that shock by describing the shock of the listeners. The Guya Samaja Tantra shows bodhisattvas falling into swoons when it's preached that one should kill sentient beings, eat feces, have sex with one's daughter, and with the Buddha's mother. The shocked bodhisattvas of the Guya Samaja Tantra are not unlike the so-called Hinayana monks who register dismay in Mahayana Sutras. Indeed, if there's no shock or revulsion, then the Tantra loses its effectiveness. Revulsion is precisely what it means to work with and overcome. Violent and militaristic metaphors have always been central to Buddhist teachings. This is another place we could kind of discount this, and this is just metaphorical. One need only think of the defeat of the army of Mara. It says in the Gandavyuha Sutra, for example, that just as a spear in the hand of a powerful man can pierce any armor, the spear of Bodhicitta and the hand of a bodhisattva pierces all views and propensities. And just as a mighty man full of wrath cannot be defeated by any man in the world as long as his forehead is gnarled, so a bodhisattva cannot be defeated by any demon as long as he has love and compassion. So there's a lot of, uh, in the mode of honor, Christian soldier kind of thing, militarized uh, religious metaphors. That's very, very common, even predominant. And again, perhaps the most remarkable is that a hand weapon, I think today I suppose if we had the equivalent for a, a Vajra, it would be an officer's sidearm, would be the fundamental uh, symbolic item that represents the power of compassion. However, the practical and ethical aspects of tantric sadness from killing seem absent from the more extreme examples we might assume are hyperbolic or merely metaphorical, such as killing all sentient beings. Uh, you don't find the unpractical sadness for going out and killing all sentient beings. And so, although there are rituals for gaining control over a woman, 
I have yet to find any practical rituals offered for raping one's sister or violating the Buddhist mother or any other shocking examples we usually regard as hyperbolic. Although I found no rituals for killing Buddhas, those for killing the enemies of Buddha are very clear, as are the ethical concerns for what intentions and states of mind qualify one for such action. So I think one of the main ways you can tell when they're really talking about killing people is when they get very practical about the ritual involved and when they get uh, very concerned about the karmic impact and how you prepare yourself for such a, an extreme action. It's also true, and this is another place that's been very strongly misread and has led people to think that the tantras take a flying leap into the, another realm ethically, is that uh, many passages have been misread in ways that exaggerate the violence of tantric ethics. Particularly important here are many of the passages that appear to state that a siddha may commit with impunity the deadly sins that are which usually direct and usually result in a direct trip to hell. These are called the immediate sins. Usually five of them, sometimes the five change. But what it means is if you do this thing, do not pass, go, do not collect $200, you go straight to hell when you die. So this is the first place I began to investigate because it seemed to be, you know, these were like the most extreme actions you could possibly perform. Um, and these, uh, these passages that seem to give the Siddha license to perform terrible acts with impunity are actually statements about the sheer power of tantric practice to overcome even the most hopeless karma. In the Guya Samaja it says, the immediates are five actions, namely killing your mother, your father, or a monk, breaking a Buddha image, and defaming the true Dharma. Immediately upon death, they lead to the state of a hell dweller. Hence, they are called immediates. Even those who have committed these crimes, who have succeeded in completing the method by the grace of the guru, will succeed. They will attain Buddhahood. What more of chandalas, sort of sometimes translated cannibals or something. I mean, the worst elements you could possibly think of. Their thoughts, their faults are made light. So the idea is that even if you've done these things, then you can still attain Buddhahood. The uh, Kala Chakra Tantra, uh, probably the most famous of all tantras, I suppose, the, in the commentary of the Vimalapatika, following a passage almost exactly identical to the one I just read you, it says, it is not, however, the intention of the Tathagata that those who are entered into the Mantrayana, who perform the fierce actions of the five immediates, even so, still acquire the fruit of Buddhahood. Here the sayings of the Blessed One, in all three yanas is auspicious in the beginning, auspicious in the middle, and auspicious in the end. The discipline, the niyama, of the Tathagata is not that those who are entered into the mantrayana perform evil action and even so come to attain the fruit of Buddhahood. The fact that he repeats this, it's a very rare to repeat something in the commentary, is one of the very bad form, uh, suggests that this was an issue in contemporary interpretation as well as for modern scholars. The ability to overcome the worst karma is a strong theme in the Tantras, as we can see in the title, Sarvadurgati Parashoda, which means a purification of the, all the bad realms of rebirth. Um, and of course, the, one of the key things here is that you could attain enlightenment in a single birth, because that was the only way you were going to escape the Vedas if you had that kind of hell realm karma shadowing. So, a huge range, or a big range, of the stuff that is most often cited to say that the Tantras are some sort of outrageous support of really diabolical uh, violence with impunity can sort of be cleared out uh, with that, because uh, this is a very common thing. 
For more evidence that tantric texts continue the high ethical concerns of earlier forms of Buddhism, one can also point to the Kalachakra Tantra's condemnation of animal sacrifice by Hindus, saying, quote, having used the Vedic Dharma for their authority, they will grasp the Muslim Dharma of killing and eating animals. It further chides them for not eating the meat of animals that have died naturally, i.e., from their own karma. Quote, for the sake of accomplishing the desire of ancestors and their fear of devas, hard to discipline people who perform evil, kill innocent sentient beings, buying, eating, and seeking the meat of those is morally wrong. The Vimala Papa, the, the, the sort of authoritative commentary, also raises the apparent contradiction that in the mantrayanas, of course really famous, that the Buddha advocates eating meat. Tantra practitioners may eat meat, right? Um, and it's further objected that even those who merely eat the meat are guilty of killing. This is all the purvapaksha, the, the sort of uh, the doubt that's being raised. Even those who merely eat the meat are guilty of killing, because without their consumption there will be no slaughter. This is much stronger than the, than the normal vinaya, right? Which usually says as long as you didn't see the animal being killed, as long as it wasn't killed just for you, that whatever falls in your begging bowl, you may eat it. In response, the commentary shows that it agrees with this strict evaluation of eating meat by exhibiting an extreme concern for the ethical purity of the minute pills of meat used in its rituals, these little dutse that they use in tantric practice. These pills must come from animals that were already dead and were not killed for the purpose. Quote, the yogi should make tiny pills of the five blameless kinds of cattle. These are identified as those which died by their own actions, were killed in fighting, or killed during misbehavior, killed by their own fault, or by a thief, etc. They are to be eaten by one engaged in yoga, having generated compassion according to the truth, with a mind free from false imagination, without moral fault, and not in any other case. Except for these ritually used pills, this is clearly still a vegetarian ethic with a strong concern for violence against the animals. It's also important to note that the general importance of compassion in the Tantras, and I won't read you a ton of examples, I'll just read you one from the Sarvadurga Parishodhana Tantra, uh, the same one that encourages killing the enemies of Buddhism. It says, remembering all the samsaras, all the sorrows of samsara as experienced by living beings, he should make the karma mudra of the Lord Vajrasattva. By the power of compassion, he should raise the thought of enlightenment for the liberation of all sentient beings. For taking across those who have not crossed, for the liberation of those who are not free, for the emancipation of those who are not liberated, for the retrieving the whole realm of sentient beings from the ocean of samsara. And the Buddhist tantric literature is pervaded by passages like this. So we have to acknowledge uh, the fundamental place compassion has in the tantric literature and its typical Buddhist concern for the ethics of vegetarianism. However, there's more than hyperbolic language in the tantric rituals for killing. And these are not just expressions of the power of the practice to overcome even the most heinous karmic background. I believe that we can discern when we are dealing with ethics and methods of actually killing others. I started with the work of Michael Broido. Although he was interested in explicating hermeneutics rather than ethics, Broido did a survey of passages to call for killing in the Hevajra Guya Samaja and Kala Chakra Tantras, with particular attention to their Indian commentaries. The interpretation of these passages is generally divided into the two classical uh, hermeneutical categories of Nita Arta and Neya Arta. These categories have a variety of applications, but in these cases, the division generally correlates on the one hand 
with interpretations that relate to the literal meaning of killing and its conventional ethical implications, and on the other hand, to symbolic interpretations that relate to tantric ritual and practice which have no bearing on actual killing. For instance, the Vimala Prabha um, interprets the Nitta-Artamiti meaning of killing as holding the semen at the top of the head through stopping the prana. Of course, the different levels of meaning are often mixed together in the same passages, and at times the same words may be hyperbolic, metaphorical, and practical. There's absolutely no clear separation, and various passages will have been read in different ways in different contexts and audiences. For instance, the following passage seems to combine the practical and hyperbolic. It begins by saying that those terrifying deeds that bind living beings are the very ones that will liberate them from the bonds of becoming when accompanied by skillful means. This is very close to Mahayana assertions found throughout the canyon of current scholarship. The bodhisattvas may benefit by the same acts that send others to hell, but the passage continues in more extreme language. As in the Mahayana, the five basic precepts are listed for potential violation, but the passage puts this in more shocking terms. The yogin should seize the property of others, he should have intercourse with their wives, he should tell lies, and he should kill all the Buddhas. My concern is with the Naya Arta passages and interpretations, sometimes called the outer rather than the inner meanings, that deal with actual killing or which one layer of meaning or in which one layer of meaning is related to actual killing. One important point is that many passages for killing are strikingly similar, sometimes identical, to the sutra passages that allow for bodhisattvas to compassionately kill. There is no special reason to assume that there are any more symbolic or metaphorical in the country context. There are a few other aspects that indicate concern for actual taking life. One is the concreteness of the techniques of ritual technologies for killing. Another is the clear concern for an ethic of compassion, which as we will see includes definition of appropriate targets, states of mind, intentions, the qualifications of the killer, the danger of backfiring black magic, and karmic penalties. Regarding the concreteness of the rituals, most of the tantras I looked at have a sadhana for killing. A sadhana means a, a ritual practice for achieving samadhi. In the Hevajra Tantra, the sadhana for killing comes as part of a list that begins with rituals for bringing rain and ends with a divination technique for finding lost objects. No doubt even rainmaking may be metaphorically interpreted, but this is clearly a set of practical rituals. They show a clear pragmatic concern for offering actual ritual technologies for bringing about a variety of desired results, including carrying out compassionate violence. <coughs> Although sutras and great acharyas of the Mahayana condone compassionate violence under certain conditions, to my knowledge they do not set forth Buddhist magic for actually performing them. The Hevajra Tantra, in contrast, not only explains that such things are ethically possible, but gets down to actually telling the practitioner how to set about killing their enemy produce the decapitation of a hostile army, or make a city tremble. This may be the distinctive aspect of the tantric treatment of killing with compassion, that it not only condones killing with compassion, but also shows precisely how to go about it in very concrete language. The Vajra Mahabharata Tantra, for instance, gives its ritual for compassion, beginning with making figurines of feces, urine, and powdered bone, and writing the name of the victim on it. The image is then chopped up, etc. Concerns over the karmic impact of the action, which was a pervasive ethical concern in India, also suggests that we are dealing with real killings. And I'm, I cut out a bunch of examples here, but 
again to the Sarvadurga Parashodhana Tantra, it says the perceptive should kill those who are zealously intent on insulting the guru, malicious toward the three jewels, and deluded about the teachings of the Buddha. Out of pity, a mantra should kill by means of a mantra the enemies of the practice who are dharmaless, enjoy sin, and are ever harmful to sentient beings. The text goes on to include violation of all the other five precepts and ends by asserting that those who do these things must be in the right mind and intention. One established in the position of Vajrasattva, it says, is successful and will not even be corrupted. And in Tibetan it says, will not have committed a sin, Pabla. Even though he does everything and experiences everything, how much more so if he is filled with mercy? This is an assurance that whatever one does for the right reasons and intentions will not entail negative consequences, rather than an encouragement to do and enjoy everything without moral implication. The point of the text, which seems to be cross-textually consistent, is clear in the following passage from the Sarvatthagata Sangraha. If for the good of all living beings or on account of the Buddha's teaching, one should slay living beings, one is untouched by sin, performing all one actions, for the good of sentient beings, and on account of the Buddha's teaching, one gains enormous merit. The motivation is compassion, and the intention is to benefit others. As in the writing of Sangha, the list of possible actions includes violations of all the precepts from killing to sexual misconduct. Just in the Mahayana, a yogin who has fully practiced the mantras and obtained power may do anything. However, quote, the mantra who does harm will go to hell because he does not fully understand virtuous and non-virtuous action. So those of insufficient spiritual maturity are warned against such fearsome actions. How distinctive is this ethic? It's important to note that it's not a violation of Mahayana ethical norms, but repeats them. The range of sins for which one may be compassionate murders has been expanded from those put forth by a sangha who seems to allow murder only in response to killing. In the tantras, you may kill someone for opposing Buddhism, assaulting the guru, being malicious over the three jewels, etc., and being deluded about the teaching of the Buddha. But this is no more transgressive than some sutras. Um, I think to save time, I won't go into a long example, but in the Mahaparinibbana Sutra, and a new translation is coming out, it's going to be extremely interesting. Um, the Buddha in a past life kills a great number of Brahmins. And it says that from that moment on, he never attained uh, a negative rebirth. In his book, uh, Ruthless Compassion, Rob Lindroth has taken an approach to this problem by looking at the development of wrathful divinities in Buddhist art. He shows that before the development of tantric tradition, the vicious deities were a strong and normative part of Mahayana art that evolved along a continuum of minor deities or fully evolved tantric divinities that function as the center of their own mandalas. He shows a rich variety of wrathful obstacle removers in texts he regards as proto-tantric, such as the Manjushri Mulakalpa. The Krota Vignantika, the angry obstacle removers of this realm, kill and destroy the enemies of Buddhism, those who want to dissipate the commands of the Buddha, their heads split open into a hundred pieces. This should be now a very ancient example. Like we said, it goes back to the Upanishads and just saw it in the Pali text. Oh, it sounds amazingly tantric. 
I would strengthen his argument by adding that wrathful deities and their ethical implications cannot just be relegated to tantric and Mahayana contexts, but are also a normal part of mainstream Buddhism. And mainstream Buddhism is a phrase that kind of like for so-called Hinayana. Um, of course, they, they seem to have been the majority and the dominant form of Buddhism in India. Um, this threat of a tantric deity to split open one head with the Vajra may sound typically tantric, but the same characters found making, making the same threats in polytexts. Mighty Vajrapani, who evolved into Vajrasattva, had his origins in Vajradhara, the armed bodyguard who follows the Buddhas in the Pali Nikayas. He's usually identified with Indra, king of the demigods, by the commentaries, and represents the ideal of kingship. He's extremely important for modeling appropriate royal violence and the perfect king's role in violently protecting the Buddha, the Sangha, sacred sites, and texts. Multiple Jatakas show Vajrapani disciplining or killing immoral kings. In one Jataka tale, Buddha himself is Vajrapani in a past life. Confronting a king who is disrespectful to his elders, he threatens to cleave the head of the monarch with his Vajra. Uh, in another uh, the Buddha in a past life is Indra himself battling the Asuras. And it's an incredible description of horrific battle scenes going on, the cries of the people dying and being wounded. Um, and the Buddha is the one leading Sarami so battling the Asuras. Um, skip a few examples here. We can bring them out in discussion if they help. Um, Vajrapani is not the only such protector deity. The Savastavad Mahavibhasha relates that the Brahmana king Pushyamitra, after usurping the Mauryan throne, engaged in a campaign of slaughter and arson against Buddhist monks, mon monuments, and monasteries. However, when his campaign approached Bodhgaya to destroy the Bodhi tree, the beautiful female protector spirit who occupied it killed him. The Ashoka Avadana, also of Sarvastivadin origin, records another tale of a Buddhist yaksha opposing Pushyamitra. This yaksha, these are the kind of uh, primal nature spirits of sort. Uh, this yaksha had taken lay precepts, so he actually couldn't go to war. His solution was to uh, marry his daughter to an, another yaksha who was described as ill-behaved. This yaksha ally destroyed the yaksha who protected Pushyamitra and smashed the king and his army with a mountain. The Mahasangakas also tell this tale and identify the yaksha who took precepts as a guardian of the stupa of the tooth. So deadly protector deities were commonly associated with the sacred sites of Buddhism, just as they were with sutras and much as they were with monasteries in Tibet. So it's apparent that in at least as broad a range of non-Mahayana traditions as the Theravadins, the Sarvastivadins, and the Mahasangakas, it was accepted that violent protector deities supported Buddhism with deadly force. Reading the vast number of passages in Mahayana sutras that seem only to imply violence with the knowledge of merit-making passionate killing, and earlier traditions of dangerous protector deities suggest that we should take their militant aspects more seriously. In the Siddharma Pundarika, Vajrapani is a form of Avalokiteshra and rewards devotion by quelling the wicked troops of foes. Remember the legend of King Harsha that we talked about earlier, which his conquest came with the assistance of Avalokiteshvara. It's said that a king should hear the Suvarna Prabhasha Sutra if he wants to defeat all foreign armies. So it became actually a tradition throughout Asia to recite the sutra before battles. Uh, when it's recited, Vajrapani and a host of other protector deities will turn back opponents 
completely defeat hordes of foreign armies, overthrow enemies in battle, and bring victory. They will fill the whole of this jungle Dabipa with his fame, and all his enemies will be soundly defeated. His enemies will always be suppressed, and he will turn away from all evil. Having conquered the vanguard, free of enemies, he rejoices. And I think if we read this as a some kind of spiritual metaphor or something, we're doing injustice to the text. So in conclusion, in the Tantra, Vajrapani and other protectors merely maintain all the normative functions of violent protector deities from earlier times. The unique thing for Tantra is not their violence at all, but that they spiritualize these violent deities, which formerly were merely violent. In regard to the literature, some passages that sound violent are hyperbolic, uh, many are symbolic on some level, some are expressions of the tantric power of tantric practice to overcome horrific karma. These again are normal claims for both mainstream and Mahayana Buddhism. Some are normal Mahayana validations of merit-making, compassionate killing. None appear to be antinomian encouragements to commit uncompassionate acts. And of course, I would never be so bold as to say that this doesn't happen in the tantric literature when so little work has been done and haven't been fully translated. But so far, looking through all this stuff, I haven't found a single case where compassion isn't considered a critical element in any uh, extreme action of killing others for the sake of Buddhism. Um, perhaps distinctively, the tantras offer actual ritual technologies for killing and a bit more shrill, hyperbolic rhetoric. So I hope I've uh, taken you through uh, my research on this some. Uh, and created some good conversation partners. Um, and just maybe end with this image uh, of uh, the Buddha followed by Vajrapani from the earliest times in the perfection of wisdom literature and the other Mahayana sutras. Uh, this burly character is depicted often in the Buddhist art, all the way from Gandhara, all the way down to Nagarjuna Konda, uh, with a Vajra in his hand threatening those who would oppose his teaching. And it's so fascinating to put that together with that. Vajra is actually the symbol for the power of compassion itself. The body armor of a, um, of a warrior is sort of the bodhicitta itself, put this armor on. Um, so we have a, a situation where you can visualize a modern figure, you know, again, the modern body armor and a firearm as the basic, most important images for compassion. And I think we start to be reading some of these stories and, and perhaps not read the Tibetan Buddhist history either in Tibet or India. Some sort of a failed dysfunctional attempt to manifest um, a weak pacifist ethic that failed in the face of Chinese invasions or Muslim invasions or something like that. The opposition of the Shai likes. So, thank you.